So you guys keep your, there, your finger there in Deuteronomy. I want to begin by opening us up and kind of introducing a topic here for us today. And I want to give you guys a quote, and I remember this quote from a YouTube video from a long time ago. It seems like a long time ago. But this quote early on had a very big impact on me as a, as a Christian when I first became a Christian. And it comes from Leonard Ravenhill. Now, I'm not sure if he wrote it or if it's just in a sermon or if it was both. But Leonard Ravenhill was this great uh, Methodist revival preacher, this, this really powerful man of God as it came to the Scriptures and in his holiness. And Ravenhill was speaking on the Christian life in this sermon, and, he, and this is what he said. Ravenhill said, The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy. And then put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Brethren, this really does seem to be the greatest challenge of the Christian life. It, that, that, that miracle that God does of saving somebody, making them holy, and then He puts them right back into the world and God keeps them holy. Brethren, that really is a miracle. And I think the reason this is such a challenge in the Christian life, that you get saved, you begin to follow Christ, and that you would continue to follow Him, is because there's such a great temptation for us to fall into as we begin to walk this Christian life, right? It's not like when you get saved in the Christian life, the Christian life just becomes easy after you get saved. In fact, brethren, the easiest part may be that God came in and saved you, and now He's got to keep you to the end. And so in light of God saving us of this great feat of salvation, brethren, I think why this is the case that it's so difficult is because the temptation for us in the Christian life is to forget God and to walk away from Him. And this is something, brethren, as, as you read your Bible, the, the Bible is constantly warning us of this temptation in the Scriptures that we would not forget God and walk away from Him. I mean, you think of this premier example here in the Old Testament, right? You guys remember Moses brings the people through the Exodus? Now here they are in the wilderness. They've been redeemed by God. And now Moses has to begin to command these people certain things. In the greatest of all these commandments, he says, you, Israel, need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and obey His commandments so that God will bless you. But then notice what he warns them of now that the God has saved them and brought them into this wilderness for them to walk and to serve and obey God. Here is what he warns them of. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 11.16 Take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And brethren, we're warned about this all the way even into the New Testament, right? You think about the author of Hebrews. He says this in, in, in almost a very similar way. He says this in Hebrews 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And brethren, when you hear that kind of thing, in the Bible, does it strike you as a sobering reality? I mean, does it just come in and, and, and just make you sit back for a second that God would have to tell the people He's just saved, take care lest your heart be deceived and you walk away from Me. 
I mean, brethren, this is a striking reality for us to think about in the Bible. How could a Christian, somebody who's been saved by God, be deceived and end up walking away from the God that just saved them? And how does that kind of thing happen? And brethren, the Bible gives us one answer for this. It happens because the Bible says that we forget God. And usually, brethren, when you think of that word forget, you think of, okay, I just, you lack memory of something, right? I do this all the time. You forget where your wallet's at, men, right? You forget where your wallet's at, or you forget somebody's name that you've met a billion times. You're like, hey, you, I remember you. You know, you forget their name. Or, you know, you, you go on vacation somewhere as a kid, and you can't remember where you went. You just know you went somewhere. And we usually think about forgetfulness, right? You just, you're, you're lacking memory of something. But, brethren, the, the kind of forgetfulness that we get warned about in the Bible is much deeper than that. It's not just forgetting a fact about something. To forget in the Bible is for your heart to grow cold towards God and to depart from Him. Right? So in the Bible, to forget God is for your heart to grow cold towards God and you end up departing from Him. Brethren, it's this act of laying aside the things of God, right? Laying aside His Word. You lay aside His commandments and you put them away, brethren, like you would put away old, unused things up in a storage attic and then you never return to those things again. And so, if you have forgotten God as the Bible describes it, brethren, you haven't just lacked some memory of God. Brethren, if you've forgotten God, it's because your heart... Your heart has grown cold towards Him. And so you put the things of God to the side and then you fail to return to them. You leave them in storage, never to come back to them. And brother, listen, Moses sees this connection. He, he, he links these two ideas together for us between forgetting and then later on departing. Forgetting God, and then you walk away from God. And he tells the people this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Listen to this, verse 9. He tells them in a similar fashion. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And so brethren, listen, this biblical idea of forgetfulness often centers around these three things that we end up forgetting. And I want to give you these three things. So forgetfulness often centers around three central ideas here in the Bible. The first is you forget what God has done for you. Right? You begin to forget what God has done for you in saving you. Second, is you forget the relationship that God has with you, right? And we call this relationship what in the Bible? What, it was, what, is, what term do we have for a relationship with God? It's a theological word. It starts with a C. Covenant, right? Right? So you, you forget the relationship that, you, that God has with you, this covenant that He's made with you, where you've come into this covenant to have this great relationship with God. So you forget this relationship with God. And third, brethren, 
you forget the commands that God has given to you. And you think about this. You forget one, and the others fall with it, right? This, this is a cluster right here. You forget one, you forget the others. And, and you listen here to these warnings that Moses gives, and the things that he warns the people about that they're going to forget. And notice, they're going to be the three things that I just told you about. So I want you, I want you to hear these, and, and we'll pause a little bit to, to, to focus in on these. So, so listen to the first one, right? You forget what God has done for you. Moses in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 10, describes this to them. He says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you are full, then take care. Why, brethren? Listen, why ought they to take care then after they receive all of these different blessings? Here's the temptation. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So notice, here's the first of the cluster. You forget God? What is He telling them they're going to forget? What's the first thing that they're going to forget as they go into the land? They're going to forget what God did for them in Egypt, brethren. The blessing's going to spoil them, and they're going to forget God brought us out of Egypt, and He put us here. And they forget. So here's the second one, right? They they forget what God's done. And and now they forget this relationship that they have with God. They forget God's covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Listen to this one. Here's the same phrase. Take care. Now you listen, right? Take care. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. You think about that personal relationship right there. The covenant of your God, which He made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So brethren, listen, there's a second thing right there. Take care, lest you forget the God that you have a relationship with. The one in which He came and made a relationship with you. And then lastly, that third one, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, here in verse 11. Same refrain again. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not what? Keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. I mean, brethren, what a cluster of forgetfulness right here. And the question that you want to ask yourselves, because these passages don't just come to Israel for their own problems end up not addressing your problems. Brethren, they address you just as they addressed Israel. And so, don't just read those and go, wow, Israel had to really think about not forgetting God. Brethren, the same thing comes to you as God's people. And do you want these kind of things said about you? That you grew fat and prideful and you forgot. You came into covenant with God. You remember that God brought you out of slavery to sin. Right, the kingdom of darkness, and then he gives you this wonderful lawgiver in Christ, these great commandments that we would be able to abide in him, as we heard in John 15. And then you grow fat and you grow prideful, 
and you forget the God that was the one who did these things for you, that He saved you, that He brought you into covenant, that, you, that, that, that He gave you these wonderful commandments. And brethren, what a devastating thing it would be for these things to be said about us, that we would forget the Lord who did all these things for us. But you need to hear this. This can happen to you. And we know it happened to Israel. And so, brethren, don't, let's kill the pride now and think to ourselves, we're not any better than Israel was. And so we need to come to this realization that this can and will, if we are not diligent in this, happen to us. And so the question we need to think then is, man, if forgetfulness is such a central thing, a central sin the Bible warns us about, how do we avoid forgetting the Lord and walking away from Him? And so that's what we're going to answer today. And here's your hopefully short, clear answer. How do you avoid forgetting the Lord and walking away from Him, brethren? The answer is this. Guard your heart with vigilance. That's it. That's the answer. Guard your heart with vigilance. So I want to look at a few brief things here, four things that we can do to positively guard our hearts and to continue walking faithfully with the Lord and not forgetting the Lord and walking away from Him. And so these four things are going to be, brethren, you need to remember what God has done for you. That's going to be our first thing. The second thing is you need to store up the Word. Third thing is you need to aim at future blessing. And I'll explain what that means as we get to that third point. And lastly, brethren, you need to walk in faithful obedience. You need to walk in faithful, joyful obedience. So here's this first point for us. Guard or excuse me, this first point, remembering what God has, has done for us. So, brethren, you, you need to, at, at the very beginning right here, do this kind of thing, right? You need to remember what God has done for you, right? You need to remember where you came from, right? Our situation before Christ was not a good one, right? We didn't, we didn't, it wasn't just an upgrade. You didn't go from you know, a two-bedroom to a four-bedroom in Christ. You went from nothing to something, right? And you went from nothing to something glorious. So you need to remember that. And you need to remember how far God has brought you out of where you previously were. So I want you to just hear these passages. I know some of these are familiar to you, but I want you to just hear them and recall again to your mind. And I want you to think personally here about where you were before Christ and think about that in light of these passages. So that... Brethren, we can become dull to the idea of where we really were before Christ. So let's listen to some of these. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning here in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh." carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, hear that, delivered you from darkness, brethren, and transferred us to the kingdom 
of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for who? The unrighteous. Bunch of unrighteous people we used to be. Christ suffered for the unrighteous. That He might bring us, the unrighteous, to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans chapter 6 verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Brethren, you hear all those passages, and you know how many more we could spend this morning reading. And you ask, how could we ever forget such a God who has done those things for us? I mean, brethren, you really think about that. If God didn't do those things for you, you would be on the way to hell. No hope. And yet... God did do these things for us. And so how can we forget such a God? Who on earth would depart from a God who's done such great things for them? And brethren, it's because the first thing. We don't recall these things to mind. We don't remember these things. We don't recall what God has done for us over and over and over again. And in fact, what we end up doing is we hear it over and over again, and we think it becomes mundane to us. Ah, I've heard that before. I know that. And brethren... You fight that temptation and kill it. You need to recall these things regularly. This is how you begin to guard your heart. You must do this, right? It's not like God's offering you a suggestion. Well, here's a, maybe a helpful thing. God says, remember, command, an imperative. You've got to do this. God commands this for us, brethren. And it's because it's for our own good. He knows you're forgetful, and so He tells you, remember. Brother, what, what was one of the central commandments that we heard back in some of those readings in Deuteronomy given to Israel when they're about to come into the promised land that we just read? What, what, was, what, was, what was one of the central commands? And I, and I just spent the last two minutes telling you about it. What was one of those central commands? Yes. Which the positive side of that is, remember, right? Listen back to that verse again. Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I mean, brethren, that was no small act. (laughs) Even on a physical standpoint, God brought a, a huge amount of people out of Egypt. And He tells them, take care. That you forget God who did that? I mean, brethren, you think about your salvation, and you, you have to think to yourself, my salvation was greater even than that exodus out of Egypt. I had an exodus, a departing out of sin, death, slavery. Brethren, you got to remember. And he tells them this later on too. 
If these people are going to go into this land and they're going to conquer, right? They're going to go in and dwell on the land and enjoy God's blessings and, and, and conquer the enemy and remain. They have to remember. It's one of the commandments to enjoy the blessings of God. They've got to remember that it's not an option for them. Because if they don't, they will forget. And God says, then you'll perish because you'll forget. Brethren, they have to recall to mind what God has done. God was their great redeemer, and they can't forget that. They don't have an option to forget that. And brethren, if you want to conquer in the Christian life, if you want to make it ultimately to Zion's gates at the end of the day, then you must remember what God has done for you. You must. So second, need to, or first, we need to remember. Second, we need to store up the Word. So here's what I mean by that, right? Store up the Word. I mean, you guys, we talk about this all the time here. And so we'll... Well, when we, we are constantly exhorting you guys to be consuming the Word, consuming the Word, consuming the Word. It's this idea. You're storing up this Word, right? You're taking in the Word on a regular basis. You know, you think about reading the Word in your devotions, or there you are studying, reading a book, taking in the Word, try, trying to actively think about the Bible. Or you're, you're there memorizing the Word and trying to meditate on it. You know, like day and night, you're trying to meditate on this Word and think about it and think about it and, and, and to dwell on it and, to, and, and for it to be something that, that you know very well. Uh, and, or brethren, even, even just as you're consuming the Word, right? you guys are doing this now in your lives. You're trying to think, well, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? How can I be a better father or a mother? All these different things, brethren, you're trying to bring into the Word into your life that it would change everything, your thoughts, your, your, your words, your actions, because you want to store up this Word that it would produce something out. So this is what I mean by we need to store up the Word. This, that's what it looks like. You need to take in the Bible... But, but you don't want to just take it in up here. You, you want to take it in and read it and devote yourself to it that it, that it would have this, this effect upon you, that it, that it would change you. And so, obviously, there, there's a, a million benefits and reasons why we can say, okay, you need to store up the Word of God in your heart. But I want to draw our attention to just two particular reasons of why you need to store up the Word in your heart in order to guard your heart. I want to give us two particular reasons why the Word needs to be stored up in your heart so that it would guard your heart. And so we need to store up the Word in our heart, brethren, that it would produce this, this guardian effect over us for two reasons. One, it's going to do this for us. The Word will act as a defense for us. And second, the Word will train us to love righteousness or discipline us to love righteousness. So why do we need to store up the Word in order to guard our hearts? Well, brethren, those two things. The Word will act as a defense for you. And second, the Word will train you or discipline you to love righteousness. So brethren, I want you to hear this with this first one, right? The, the Word will be a defense for you. I mean, you think, of, think about that imagery of you can, it's like, imagine your Bible grows arms and legs and pulls out a sword. I mean, there's just really this idea that the Word of God can really come in and be this protection for you. Almost like you got your bodyguard sitting on your right and on your left, you know, ready to step in front of you to, to, to help you. And so, 
What are, as you guys think about that idea that the Word of God comes in and, and guards us or keeps us or protects our hearts, what are some Bible verses that come to mind about the Word of God acting as a guard for you? Can you guys think of any? The Word of God coming in and acting as a guard for your soul. Actually, that, that works. I didn't write that one down, but that definitely works. Okay, so yeah, Ephesians 6. You think of anything in particular where someone in the Scripture says, the Word of God guarded my heart, or, or, or just that, that idea is very explicit in the text. Okay, David in the Psalms. What does David say? Okay, yes, there, that's a good one. That's one I have right here, right? So here's one. How can a young man keep his way pure? Right? That's the question. Psalm 119.9. What's the answer, church? By guarding it according to your word. What else can you think of? Can you think of any other examples in the Scriptures? Very similar to the one that Stephen just said, right? Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Right, so here the Word of God comes in and it's acting as this great defense for him. I store it up in my heart so that I won't sin. How about another one? Psalm 37. It's kind of funny we read that today. That was not intent. That just happened in providential outworking right there. So Psalm 37, 30, 30, uh, 30 to 31. Listen to this, what, what, what David says. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God or excuse me, the law of his God is in his heart. And then what's the result? His steps do not slip. And this last one right here, Proverbs 13, 6. Righteousness guards him who is, whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. Right? So you get that imagery in these texts. What is the word of God doing in these texts for the Christian brother, what is it doing for him? Guarding him. And, and, and specifically, what is it guarding? Guarding his heart. And brethren, he, here's, he, here's a simple truth that you have got to believe. That God's word really does that. That you come and you open up your Bible there in the morning. You take time to give yourself to devotion and the, to the Word in the morning. And as you sit there and you pray and you say, Lord, protect me from sin. Put your Word within my heart that I would not sin against you. Brethren, it, that's, not a, that's not an empty phrase or an empty call in the Bible. But you have to really believe that for yourself. You've got to really believe God's Word, if I store it up, will really act as a defense in my heart against sin. And brother, those examples give that. They should give encouragement for us to believe that kind of thing, to pray that kind of thing, and then live out that kind of thing. That we would get up and say, hey, I'm struggling with sin. I am going to get in the Word and store it up in my heart that I won't sin against the Lord. Why? Because it will act as a guardian for me. The Word really can act as a defense against evil and wickedness, and it can keep you from sinning against the Lord. Brethren, you've got to believe that. Don't let sin linger around and say to yourself, I can't escape from this sin. Brethren, if you believe God's promise that the Word of God can come in and act as a guardian for you, you can overcome sin. It can really guard you from sinning. 
And why is this the case, brethren? Because God's word was made, it's intended, it's his own breath. The word is not something outside of God. It, it's an extension of who he is. So if his word promises it, brethren, take it to the bank because it comes from God's own character. The word can protect you from sin. And this is what the word is designed to do, brethren. It's designed to fill you up, right? It's, in, it's intended to fill up your heart so that you're not enticed away by the deceitfulness of sin. Because here's the thing. You will try to be deceived against sin, and brethren, if, if you do this, if, if you store up the word in your heart, it will stand ready over your heart to help kill all things wicked and evil at the doorpost of your heart. Brethren, it will. It'll stand there as a guardian, like that cherubim in Genesis 3, standing before the garden with that flaming sword, not letting anything unclean in. Brethren, you can take it to the bank that the word of God will stand guard over your heart and help you to kill any sinful enticement that would lead you away from the Lord. It can and will do that, and it has done that for God's people. Do you believe that? Because that's, that's where the rubber meets the road here, brethren. Do you believe that? And more importantly, have you experienced it in the Christian life? Because the psalmist had. The psalmist was not out here theorizing about what the Word could do for him. David is writing about what God's Word actually did do for him, which is why he's praising God even more for it. Right? He believed it down to his bones because he experienced this thing. And this is intended then for you to experience, brethren. I'm not just sitting up here to tell you this thing so you can go home and go, oh, I know a great fact about the Word. If I store it up in my heart, it'll protect me against sin. No, brethren, I want you to go home so that you would, that you would consume the Word and store it up in your heart and actually overcome sin and experience this great blessing that the Word really does keep my heart from stumbling. And as you can say like the psalmist, the word was able to keep his foot from going down the path of wickedness. I mean, brethren, that is just, that is just an amazing promise that we have here in the Scripture that the Lord will surely protect you if you store up his word in your heart. Brethren, he will and can keep you from sinning. And brethren, here it gets even better for you. Not only can he keep you from sinning if you store up the word in your heart, brethren, he promises also that victory and protection and overcoming all of your enemies can be had by simply storing up the word of God in your heart. I mean, it's not even just overcoming sin, brethren, but actually going in and riding off into victory of conquering enemies, of seeing strongholds get brought down, of seeing the Lord do things. And it all comes by storing up the word in your heart. Listen to what God promises this to you back in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 11, I'm going to begin in 18, and then I'm going to jump all the way to 23, because I want you to see the connection. I don't want you to get lost with some of the things in the middle. So Deuteronomy 11, 18, we're going to hear the command that we just labored to listen to. Store up the word. And he says here in verse 18, You shall therefore what? Lay up these words of mine in your heart. Store it. Consume that word, brethren, and in your soul. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I mean, it doesn't get any more Hebrew right there than just to tell you, you need the word of God before you at all times. Why? What? What will be the result for Israel, and brethren, also for you, if you store up the word of God in your heart? Verse 23, skip all the fluff in the middle. <laughs> then 
This is a result from storing up the word in your heart. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. And you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Brethren, who wants to go tear down principalities and powers here in Las Vegas who are, by their very nature, stronger and more powerful than you? Brethren, sign me up for that. Well, brethren, if we want that kind of thing, if you want to aim in that kind of thing, then listen, store up the word in your heart. Because it can't come any other way. Store it up in your heart. So our third thing. So we have remembering what God has done for you. Store up the word. And then three, aim at future blessing. Now here's all I mean by this. I just really like that title. Just means to remember the blessing of God that He holds out for your future, right? God promises you future blessing if you make it till the end, if you conquer, and He says you'll have these future blessings. So this is what I'm trying to draw our attention to. That the Lord tells us that another way that we guard our heart in order that we don't forget Him is that we look down the road towards future blessing. Does that make sense? Another way you can guard your heart from falling away from God and forgetting Him is He puts the promises of your future before you almost as like a carrot on the end of a stick, but He's actually going to give you the carrot, right? <laughs> he's not just dangling it out there for you to never reach, but He's holding out the reward for you. And so here, as we look back in the Scriptures, I want you to notice as we... Read this section in Deuteronomy 11. We're going to get in one chapter here in Deuteronomy 11. The Lord reminds His people three times. <laughs> in three times in one chapter. He reminds the people of future blessing they will have if their hearts remain faithful. Right? And so, so notice what God is doing then there. God is holding out reward... For obedience. And that obedience will produce their desired end, which is future blessing. So I want you to listen to these. It's one Deuteronomy 11 and verses 8 through 9. It's the first occurrence we get of this. So listen to this. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. Brethren, what a great description of a place to live, right? If God told us, Redeemer, Vegas has just gone into the depths of the ocean or something like that, and here's going to be your new home, and He describes it like that, oh, I bet you would hold out your new home before you and say, I'll remain faithful, I want to go there. That place sounds great. And so Israel's, hey, you remember this land I'm bringing into? Place of abundant blessing. And then he goes on and he does this again in the same chapter, beginning in verse 13. So look at verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields of your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. 
Now, brethren, another blessing held out for God's people. Now, why, why does he hold out grain and wine and oil? Well, it's because these are the things of festivity. This is like, hey, on Saturday, we're going to go over to Manny's or Nick's and we're going to go do a church barbecue and we all bring all the good stuff with us. You know, the stuff that's not very good for you, but we really like. That's what it's like. He's saying, hey, remember what I'm going to give you in this land down into your future. Grain, oil, and wine. It is going to be nothing but feasting in the land if you remain faithful to me. You really will have a feast before me. And then he does it one more time here in chapter 11. This is the third time of reminding them of the blessing. Down in verse 21 and 23, he begins, That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. Now jump to 23. Then the Lord will drive out these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. So, brother, notice what he's enticing them there with this third time. Now he's telling them, listen, now you think about your children's children here. Wants them to think generationally, holding out this idea of future blessing towards them. That their children will actually be able to be multiplied in the land and possess it because their enemies will be, go, will be driven out and their people, their own children, will populate the land. Brethren, listen. With all three of those examples in one chapter, God is holding out all of these blessings to the people. And I want you to hear this. He's holding out blessings to the people in order to, listen, in order to get them to remain faithful to the Lord. When you think about that, God is saying, I'm going to bless you with all of this goodness down the road in your future if you would remain faithful. And so God's doing this in order for them to remain faithful. And brethren, you need to stop and think about this for a second. This is not wrong for God to do so. God is not doing something wrong by offering blessing for obedience, right? And nor, brethren, then for you, is it wrong to use blessing as motivation towards those desired ends, right? It's not wrong for God to use these blessings as motivation for obedience. And brethren, it's not wrong for you to use these blessings as motivation towards obedience. The Bible does this kind of thing. And we need to hear this. We really do because even for me still, I've been a Christian now over 10 years. And I still hear this kind of thing. And it still kind of makes me squirm a little bit, right? Because we have this impulse in us to react negatively to this idea, right? We think obedience shouldn't be motivated by such factors as blessing. Oh, we can't obey God because God holds out blessing for us. We obey God because God says to, you know, and you stand to attention like an army soldier. Now, brother, listen, I'm not making fun of that idea, right? At the end of the day, whether you are poor and destitute or you're sitting in Solomon's, you know, temple, uh, it, it doesn't matter. You do obey God because God has told you to do. But brethren, there is no separation between God and His blessings, and we don't need to create one. We don't need to create a problem that is not there for God and doesn't need to be there for us. We can look and say, if I follow God and obey Him, 
there's future blessing and reward for me. And then when you get done saying it, you can smile. Let's go. That's an amazing thing, right? And brother, that's no different than how you raise your own children. Your children obey, and there's blessing. There's future reward ready for them, moving on into greater heights of glory, greater maturity, greater responsibility, right? Brother, there's no different in the Christian life. And so we need to get over that idea that we just simply obey God because God says to. Yes, brother, we obey God because God says to. But God says over and over again, you obey, and I'll bless you. And so, brother, we don't, we don't want to end up throwing this truth out because others have ended up twisting this kind of truth. Like, you know, you put God in an armhole and get what you want out of Him, and then you let Him go once you get the thing that you want. Well, of course, brother, people do that. But, brother, listen to this. If you struggle with this idea, then I want you to look at even Jesus Himself. Because if Jesus can do this sort of thing, if He can put future blessing before His eyes as motivation to go down His path, then, brethren, don't think it an unholy thing to do. It is something that is good and right for you to do. Now, the question is, where, do, where does the Bible speak about the Lord Jesus putting future blessing before Him as motivation towards obedience? And I have a particular passage in mind. Okay, the, the sick pastor said Hebrews 12, right? Here in Hebrews 12, listen to this. Listen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, right? So when you're running this great race, brethren, and you're trying to guard your heart... You want to do it the way that Jesus did it. How did Jesus do this as our great example? Well, he says it right here. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. <laughs> right? He's got future blessing before his eyes. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brethren, Christ looked at His exaltation to the right hand of the Father in the glory that would come from it, and it caused Him to go to the cross. He said, oh yes, future blessing, I will gladly obey, even if it means dying and hanging there on a cross and taking on all the shame of the world because of what's before my eyes. So brethren, the exhortation in this is simple. Be like Jesus, right? The Sunday school answer. Do what Jesus did. Like what would Jesus do? Jesus would aim at future blessing. And so you should too. You, brethren, you need to set the joys and the blessing of God before your eyes. But you need to let the promises, brethren, and, the, and these glories of Christ be all the more reason why you guard your heart. Because I got such a good thing coming my way. And brethren, in doing so, putting this future blessing before you, brethren, the promises of Christ will be yours. You put this glory, these promises of future blessing, brethren, you put it at the finish line of your life so that you would run well to obtain them. And brethren, here is... Here's the beauty of it. You will. 
if you do so. So aim at future blessing. So lastly, our fourth thing. Joyful obedience. Brethren, we need, in order to guard ourselves from sin and falling away, we need to walk in joyful obedience. Now I'm going to keep emphasizing that. Joyful obedience. And this is probably the most important one in this whole thing. Because brethren, you can remember what God has done. right? You can store up the Word. You can look towards future blessing. But it will mean little. It will mean very little if joyful obedience does not flow from it. And brethren, I keep saying joyful obedience as well for a particular reason. Remote and cold obedience cannot, listen to this, remote and cold obedience cannot and will not produce a well-guarded heart. It won't. It may be guarded for the time, but after a while, it's going to be weathered down until it's vulnerable. It will not produce a well-guarded heart. And, and Nick actually reminded me of, of an example of, of, of just getting at this idea here in the Old Testament. And so if you guys remember, uh, if someone was a, a slave or a servant in their master's house, right? The, you had these different stipulations of what these servants or slaves could do, right? So the law would allow for a servant, if he had a harsh, cruel master, right? It actually allowed for him to be able to escape out of his, out of his situation, to run away, right? And why would, a, why would a servant do this? Why would you run away from somebody who is your master? Because you don't love them. <laughs> your heart is very cold towards them. It's it just all you're performing as you serve that master is remote, cold obedience. You're not serving out of love. And so this servant could depart because his love for his master was not there and because his master was harsh. However, a servant who ended up loving his master who saw his master as a good man and provided all the things that he needed. He saw blessing in his master that was good for him and for his family. What could this person do? You guys remember what the servant could do in the Old Testament in order to show, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with this guy for the rest of my life as like, as like a vow or an oath. Yes, right? They would bore their ear through, right? So they would bore their ear, and by doing so, it would be a declaration, I will serve you all the days of my life. Now, brethren, you've got to ask yourself this question because you're thinking, man, that's such a weird thing to do. But brethren, <laughs> I don't know, and I hate to be the example of this, but I don't know if you bored your ear through. I unfortunately have. It, it hurts. You're not going to bore your ear through and say, I'm sticking with this guy the rest of my life out of cold, remote obedience. You know why you do it? You're thinking, why else would I leave this master? He's so good to me. And look at all the blessing I have. I'm not leaving this guy. So brethren, the reason you do this is because you love the master. And then the master doesn't have fear that his servant's going to go running away. Why? Because he treats the servant well. And he knows, I got the heart of that servant. And brethren, this, this bears out the same for us, does it not? Right? The, the well-guarded heart, brethren, the well-guarded heart in the Christian life is a heart that's guarded by joy, by happiness, and therefore remains faithful and close to its master. 
It, it, it just it is. Listen, listen to this in Nehemiah chapter 8. He says this in verse 10. He's, remember, he tells the people right here in order to encourage them. He says, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. This great protection over their heart, brethren, of wandering, wandering away from God is God Himself, right? This, this, this great joy that they would have. And it acts, therefore, as this great it's, it gives them strength so that they wouldn't grow weary and fail to do what God had told them to do. Joy came in and was able to guard their heart from unfaithfulness. So brethren, listen. If the, joy, if, if, if the, if the goal in the Christian life then is joyful obedience, how do we attain this joy and then maintain this joy in our obedience? So two ways. The first one is this, by faith. And second is by walking faithfully. So, how does one attain joy in the Christian life? And then, how does one maintain this joy? Walking obediently. So this first one. And I want you to see these in order, brethren, because this is important. Want us to see this because th th this is a very important for idea to have ingrained in our minds. We need to start here with faith, right? Because don't want anyone to get the wrongful impression that all you do to get joy and happiness and fruitfulness in the Christian life is that just out of pure obedience. So that all you got to do is, you know, check off a list of rules and boom, joy is going to be deposited into your bank account. That's not how it works. We see that it is first, brethren, in the scriptures, joy always comes First, foundationally, ultimately, it comes by faith. And it comes by faith in Christ. But second though, brethren, I want us to see this too. These two things are not conflicting. Joy can and will grow and mature and could be had in greater degrees if we walk faithfully in Christ. So, let's talk about this first one. By faith. So, brethren, joy is foundationally, as I've said, joy is foundationally produced by faith. And guess what? Faith alone, right? If you needed to hear it, by faith and faith alone. Here the psalmist says uh, in Psalm 4, 6-7, through 7, There are many who say, who will show us some good? And then he calls upon God. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then here's what happens. God lets His face shine upon this person and then He declares something. God was so good to me. His saving grace was upon me. And here's what He concludes. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Brethren, the whole point of this is this. The, this, the psalmist, and for the Christian, they have more joy than the wicked, not because first and foremost of what they do, but because God's goodness and, and, and grace and mercy shine upon them. And what does it fill up their heart with? Joy. Not something that they produced. Not something that was, you know, worked up in their heart by doing a bunch of things. It's simply they called out to God to lift up the light of His face upon them. God answered and then joy was filled into their hearts because they can now see God. And the psalmist says something very similar again in Psalm 16, verse 11. He says, 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brethren, the psalmist simply calls God to let his face shine upon him, that his grace would be bestowed upon him. And then he says, I just stand next to God in his presence, not doing anything for God. And it says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Brethren, this is the ultimate fountain from which joyful obedience springs forth. It's delighting in God. And how does one delight in God? Well, brethren, it's by faith. And listen, this is very important because you can't settle for less than this. You have to begin here. This is ultimately what actually makes you a Christian, right? It wouldn't do us good to tell you how you could have joy, uh, how you can guard your heart with joyful obedience in the Christian life with missing the heart of what it means to be a Christian, right? The Christian is the one who delights himself in God by faith. And they're Therefore, by faith, they experience the joy that God gives. And you're able to look to God and say, all my joy, all my hope is found in Him, brethren. And that only occurs by faith. That's not something you can work. You can't conjure that sort of foundation. And brethren, this means that fundamentally, faith is the instrument that enables us to comprehend and taste and delight in God and thereby experience joy. If you want to experience any kind of future joy, any kind of growing joy in your Christian life, it's got to begin with faith and it's got to end with faith. It always has to be powered by faith. And brethren, by faith we can, we've, we very well can experience God for all that He is. As, as, we, as we hear in the Bible, God is the God of all joy. And the Christian then is able to say with the psalmist this in Psalm 36. The Christian's able to say, how precious, right? How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light we see light. Brethren, joy therefore is ultimately produced by what? By faith. It's by faith. You taste and you see. And now you, you begin to see all the things that you now do for God as giving you even more joy because you've tasted of the original thing. You've tasted of the source of the fountain. And so don't get that confused. Joy is not ultimately produced by obedience, brethren. It's faith. But, as we're going to see, this does not mean then that faithfulness and obedience won't produce joy. They most certainly will. Faithfulness can produce joy. And it actually may serve to keep us joyful in the Lord. But brethren, ultimately, joyfulness is ultimately found in delighting in God. And so, listen... This should encourage you because, listen, brethren, you come in here sometimes and you're not delighting in God. You're not walking in joyful obedience. And so you can think, man, the first thing I got to do then is I got to get everything in shape first. I got I to gotta get ready for church better. I got to 
make sure I read the Bible seven times this week. And you just begin to create this list of things that you got to do. But brother, listen, if you find yourself cold, dead, indifferent, remote from God and His commandments, then you go run and you go seek God. Go run and go seek Him. Say like the psalmist. He had to ask God to do it. Lord, let the light of your face shine upon me. I need grace. I need mercy. I need to be able to see light so that I can experience more light. I need you to do this for me. Brethren, that's where your joy is going to be found. And then, brethren, you can walk in faithfulness in light of that. (laughs) But, brethren, listen. We need a heart that finds joy in the Lord. And we can know that we are on a good path to be well-guarded to be well guarded from falling away from God. But second, brethren, we need joy by faith. But second, we need to walk faithfully in light of the faith that you have. Right? Think about how James says it. You show me, you, I'll show you my faith, you show me your works, right? You think about this and he says, well, well, man, I'll show you my works and by them I'll show you my faith, right? This whole idea that Walking faithfully in light of faith is something that we must do in order for our joy to grow. And that this kind of thing really can and does produce continuing growth and joy in the Christian life. You hear how the psalmist says this over and over again. Listen to some of these. Psalm 119. He says, Blessed, or a better translation of this to really get the point across to you, happy, right? Joyful. Happy are those whose way is what? Blameless. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep His testimonies. Who seek Him with their whole heart. Who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. Psalm 119, 35 and 40. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. Behold... I long for your precepts in your righteousness, which he's referring to his precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Psalm 119, 47 to 48. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. Psalm 119, 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Lastly, Psalm 119, verse 93. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Brethren, isn't that astounding? Aren't aren't those astounding realities that the Bible portrays in obedience to God's Word? That even the psalmist can say, if I had not given myself to your word, I would have perished. Brethren, the Bible teaches us that from faith flows forth a continuous joy as we walk faithfully before God. Hear that. The Bible teaches us that from faith flows forth a continuous joy in walking faithfully before God. God's words, His commands, His ways, they become our delight. And what do they produce? They produce 
joyful obedience. And is this not the way that we hear about the blessed man or the happy man of Psalm 1? What does he delight in doing? He delights in faithfully carrying out the word of the Lord and what gets produced from it. He meditates on it day and night. What does he become? He becomes this great mighty tree planted by streams of water, producing fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. He does not perish. He does not fall away. This is the way with joy, brethren. As a fruit of the Spirit, listen, as a fruit of the Spirit, joy is not only something that you have as a Christian, but it's something that you continually produce as a Christian. Right? Joy is not just something you get as a one-time transaction. I became a Christian, God put a little bit of joy in my life, and now i got to make it last the rest of my Christian life. No, no, no. God says, here, I filled you with the delight of my face, right? The joy that I put in your heart. And now he says, walk faithfully, and you'll experience more joy. This is something that one continually produces. And brethren, as, as you joyfully delight in God's Word to do God's things, to faithfully follow His commandments, He says you'll produce more joy in you. And brethren, joy then in light of joyful obedience, you need to think about it like this, it's going to compound in your life, right? You guys know what compounding interest is, Hopefully. And if you don't, you should figure it out. You might make some more money down the road, right? You go put some money in the bank. Do you want to put money in the bank of the savings account that has compounding interest or no compounding interest? Which one? Compounding. And brethren, that's the same thing with joy. God tells you, follow me and your joy is going to compound and it's going to continue to grow, 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 and grow. I promise it. Do it. So brethren, in light of joyful obedience, joy compounds. It grows, it grows, it grows until it's this big cultivated thing, brethren. I could imagine. It's like you get this nice joy, this little fruit of you know, joy right there. And then you, it grows and grows and grows to where you just got like this big old thing you didn't even know you could have in the Lord. But brethren, that's the reality. And here's a sad thing. And I know Nick has seen this. I know Manny has seen this. I know we've seen this in different contexts. Maybe you guys have seen this. Other Christians have failed in their life to gain higher ground in their Christian life where they have more joy, more happiness, more reward, all these different things because they fail to grow in faithfully walking before the Lord. They just do. Brother, you know that, that person who's been walking with the Lord 10, 20, just a, a good amount of time. And they don't look any different from the day that God saved them. Now, praise the Lord, God saved them. But, but, but there's, no greater, there's no greater heights of their Christian life. It's like they're just on a plateau. And they're just walking across this straight and flat field. That's not the way that the Christian life is, brethren. That's not it at all. You even think about that passage in 2 Corinthians, that we go from one degree of glory to the next as we behold the face of Christ. Brethren, the Christian life is not one of just flat plateau of, of joy to be had where it's just peanut butter spread across very thinly for your life. And how many Christians have failed, Lord, not, not, even, because, not even because they're doing anything sinful necessarily, but they're not taking God at His word that faithful obedience to His commands can actually produce this sort of thing in their life. 
And so, brethren, you often see these, these kinds of Christians. They're very stunted in their growth. They're very immature often. And they're not really abounding in faithfulness. You're not finding them being faithful in the Lord's work. Because they have this misconstrued idea. they got this wrong view of joy, right? It's, it's like we talked about earlier. Well, joy is only found by faith and faith alone. So I'm going to stand here and just have faith for more joy, right? But they don't understand that's not how it works. Yes, joy is found in Christ through acknowledging Him, through seeing Him by faith. But brethren, faith gets working. And then faith begins to experience more joy in Christ. Here's what Jesus says right here in John 15, 11. And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Right? Listen to that. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as what? What's the example given to tell you that if you keep his commandments, good things are coming your way? He uses himself as just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, right? Why? That my joy may be in you. And then here is the particular phrase I want you to pay attention to. And that your joy may be full. And if you guys remember the James series, hopefully, Right here, that your joy may be full. Brethren, that's a very similar word that we heard to in James. To be a perfect man. To be a mature man. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you keep my commandments, my love will continue to abide in you. And not only that, it's going to produce something. It's going to produce matured joy. That your joy may be completed, is how you could read that. Full, complete, mature, right? No longer this infantile joy, which is great. It's glorious. It's a gift. No longer just the small nut or the acorn. Brother, you're going to have the full thing bloomed, right? That your joy may be mature. So listen, do not, brethren, don't fall into this trap where you despise obedience, where you see obedience almost as like a hindrance to joy in the Christian life, that is the furthest thing away from what the Bible says. Obedience, brethren, is actually a great friend and companion to you that wants to lead you to higher heights of joy. You need to embrace obedience then. It's a friend for you. Travel along with it. Lock arms with it. Follow along the path of obedience. Take obedience with you. And you see where obedience will take you, brethren. Greater heights of glory. Greater heights of joy. And brethren, listen, it will grow you. It will mature you. And it will cause you to walk in more and more joyful obedience to the Lord. Believe it. So brethren, as we end here, we need to remember that sober reality there at the beginning. That lest we forget. So brethren, let's, let's guard our hearts then with vigilance, like the proverb says. That we would remember what God has done for us. Brethren, that we would be storing up the word in our heart. That we would be looking down the road towards future blessing. Brethren, that we would practice walking in joyful obedience by faith. Your life actually depends upon it. 
That's what those warnings tell you. And so listen, brethren, the danger is very real. But the promises are just as real. The hope that is laid out for you is just as real. That God's people can and ought to come into a greater state of joyful obedience. And all these things come with it. So that they would be able to guard their hearts and not walk away and fall away from the living God and perish. And brethren, may that never be the case for us. So guard your hearts. Let's pray.